worship today. Well, today we come to our last sermon in 1 Timothy. Next week we're going to be starting a new series called Encountering Jesus, where we're going to learn about, you know, from Jesus and from his encounters with various people. Today we're going to look at the very final words of the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, Timothy. So open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, and follow along as I read verses 20 and 21. It says, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Father, that's our prayer request here this morning. We pray this morning that grace would be with us. Your grace, the power of your grace, the wonder of your grace, the grace that brought us to Jesus Christ, the grace that inaugurated us in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that that grace would flow this morning in this sermon, in our minds and our hearts, challenging us and convicting us, moving us to follow you from your word, from your spirit, all to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Well, on January 14, 2005, Shane Maxner died in an avalanche. The 27-year-old and four of his friends drove to the Canyon Ski Resort uh, just outside of Park City, Utah, rode the ski lift up, hiked up to the backcountry gate outside the Dutch draw area, and went through the gate that was posted with warning signs and started snowboarding. On the second trip down the same slope, someone in the party shouted avalanche. But Shane could not escape. Two days later, they dug his body out of the snow. Some of the media severely criticized the reckless and out-of-bounds riders, picturing Shane as a novice unaware of the possible dangers. But that's not the true story. Maxner and two others of his party were avalanche-certified backcountry guides. The men owned special avalanche gear, but didn't bring it with them when they went to Dutch Draw. This is not an unusual occurrence, the article said. In fact, it said skiers with uh, most avalanche training are more likely to be seduced into the faulty reasoning by factors like Track slopes and group enthusiasm. See, Maxter didn't die because he was a fool. Like his friends, he was lulled into letting his guard down. He was lulled into letting his guard down. There can be great danger in life when we let our guard down, when we start to get too comfortable, when we start to just let things slip by. We can start to get lazy. We can start to let things happen That shouldn't happen. We can start to take the situation for granted. We can start to lose our focus on what is important. That's true for well-trained snowboarders. That's true for us. How many times have you heard of an accident that happened at work or at home from something that they had done thousands of times, but this time they didn't take the necessary precautions? A A painter friend of mine from my church in Columbus, would sometimes volunteer to do some painting at our church. 
I worked with him and his crew several times at the church, and I had never met someone so cautious. He was meticulously cautious. He wasn't just concerned about safety. He actually followed every safety precaution. Sometimes it would slow his work down because he was uh, so cautious and taking safety so seriously. Well, almost always, right? It was a Friday at the end of the day. He was rushing to finish a job, and he started leaning over as far as he could to paint just a little bit more, and he fell. He fell off a ladder while painting in a two-story entranceway in a home. Among his many injuries, he had jammed his leg so far up into his shattered hip that they literally had to attach a bar to his leg to pull his leg out of his hip. When I heard the news that he had fallen, I was truly surprised. Not Gary, I thought. He was always on his guard. He always took safety seriously. Well, almost always. It's amazing how easy it is for us to drop our guard, even in life-threatening situations. Paul's concluding words to Timothy are a passionate plea. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit within you. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. Timothy is to stay vigilant, to stay watchful, to, to safeguard the deposit that's been entrusted to him. Paul is challenging Timothy to not get lazy, to not take his situation for granted, to, to not be negligent of the truth that has been given to him. You know, the word deposit a money term. You know, we take our money and we deposit it in the bank where it is safe and preserved for us for, you know, its proper use. If you deposited money in the bank and then you went to go use it and it was gone, that would not be a good situation. Because deposits are to be guarded. Deposits are to be preserved. Deposits are to be protected. Timothy is to guard and preserve and protect that which had been entrusted to him. It's a precious treasure. So the question comes to us, what's the deposit? What's the deposit Timothy is supposed to guard? One commentator said that the deposit he is to guard can be nothing less than the revelation of Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. Another said the minister of God is to guard and keep, to look after and care for the faith and truth of God, the faith and truth of his son, for the faith and truth of his word, his revelation, and his gospel. So the, so the deposit entrusted to Timothy, the, the deposit entrusted to all pastors, the deposit entrusted to all churches, the deposit entrusted to every follower of Christ, the deposit entrusted to you and to me is the truth of God, the truth of his son, the truth of his word and the truth of the gospel. One commentator put it this way. Timothy here is to keep diligent and watchful guard over the faith committed to his trust, to preserve it unaltered and uncorrupt, so as to hand it down to his, his successors exactly the same as he received it. Oh, that the successors of the apostles has always kept this precept. I'm sure that Timothy did his duty and guarded and preserved and protected what was entrusted to him. But so many have so poorly guarded the deposit. 
But so many have so poorly not passed on an unaltered and uncorrupted, a once for all delivered to the saints, faith and truth. So the question is, how about us? When the 20th century began, there was this tumultuous conservative uproar over the infiltration of numerous denominations by theological liberalism called higher criticism. The situation was serious and required immediate action. Heretical teachings was captivating and corrupting entire churches, schools, seminaries within multiple denominations. From 1910 to 1915, a 12-volume set called The Fundamentals, a Testimony to the Truth, commonly just called The Fundamentals, was published. Uh, The 90 essays were written by 64 different authors representing most of the major Protestant Christian denominations. The essays were written to affirm conservative Protestant beliefs and to combat the false teachings that were infiltrating the church. The fundamentals are widely considered to be the foundation, the start of modern Christian fundamentalism. These fundamentals have often been reduced to the five fundamentals of the truth of doctrines. Historically, if you believed these five fundamentals, you were called a fundamentalist. Now, fundamentalism in our culture, some a hundred years later, takes on a far different meaning. But by the old definition, the five fundamentals, if you had those, you were a fundamentalist. So, so we are today, as a church, fundamentalists, because we fundamentally believe in these five fundamentals of the church as Many churches do in our day today. The five fundamentals are the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on the cross, and the physical resurrection and the personal bodily return of Christ to earth. There are many things that have been deposited in our spiritual bank account. Truths that have been handed down to us that we must guard and preserve and protect. At the heart of these truths are these five fundamentals of the faith. The inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross, the physical resurrection and bodily return of Christ. These are our deposits in our spiritual, doctrinal, theological bank account. These are the truths for which there is no wavering. These are the truths for which we must defend. These are the truths for which we must literally die for. These are the truths that are much more precious to us than our very lives. Beloved, on this very day, believers all around the world are forfeiting their lives as they hold unwaveringly to these truths deposited in their account. Well, I'd like to summarize our spiritual deposit into two truths this morning for us, the inerrant word of God and the gospel message. We're to guard, we're to protect and to preserve and to defend the truth that the Bible is God's word and that the gospel is God's message. Now, when someone goes on a full frontal attack against these teachings, we marshal our forces and we valiantly fight back. 
We're not at all ill-prepared to defend and protect these spiritual deposits when the battle lines are clear and the enemy is easy to spot. The challenge for the church has always come when the enemy is slow and the battle lines are blurred. It has always been the slow and subtle movements when our guard is down, when we think we can handle it, when that small errors start to creep in and that after years go by, you look back and you suddenly realize how far you have left the path of true orthodoxy. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said in his blog this week, talking about how denominations and schools and churches get into theological error, he said, how does this happen? Rarely does an institution decide in one comprehensive moment of decision to abandon the faith and seek after another. The process is far more dangerous and subtle. A direct institutional invasion would be instantly recognized and corrected if announced honestly at the onset. Instead, theological disaster usually comes by the means of drift and evasion, shading and equivocation. Eventually, the drift accumulates into momentum and the schools abandon doctrine after doctrine, truth claim after truth claim, until the pattern of sound words, and often the sound words themselves, are mocked and denied and cast aside in the spirit of theological embarrassment. Important words for us to ponder this morning. Important words to ponder this morning in light of Paul's plea to Timothy. It rings so loud and clear in our ears. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Oh, Brian, guard the deposit entrusted in you. Poland Village Baptist Church, guard the deposit. Throughout the history of the church, there have been many reformations. That's a returning to the fundamentals of the faith. Some are grand movements of God that have affected the whole universal church. Some reformations are just within certain denominations or just within individual churches. Of course, the great historic reformation of the 14th and 15th century rescued biblical Christianity from the slow creep of the centuries away from true doctrine. Martin Luther is one of the key figures in all of church history, a man mightily used by God to help bring about the Great Reformation. In 1517, over a dispute about the sale of indulgences, that is the ability to purchase good works and thus help someone achieve heaven, the ability to purchase heaven, to buy heaven for yourself and somebody else, Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church where he served. This event inaugurated the movement from the Catholic Church into the battle cry of the Reformation. Only Scripture, sola scriptura, only faith, only grace. Four years later, he was summoned to Worms, Germany to stand trial for his writings. On April 18, 1521, Luther appeared before the General Assembly of the Estates of the Holy Roman Empire, when directly asked whether he would recant of his writings and his beliefs, he responded, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture and by clear reason, I am bound by the Scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. 
since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. On May 25th, the emperor presented the final draft of the assembly at Worms, declaring Luther an outlaw, banning his literature, and requiring his arrest, saying, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic. It also made it a crime for anyone in Germany to, to give Luther food, to give him shelter, and it permitted anyone to kill him without legal consequence. What was his crime? What was Luther an outlaw for? Because he professed his sole allegiance to the scriptures, to the teachings of the scriptures. The church had drifted so far from the scriptures that to claim your allegiance to, only to the scripture was to be called a heretic and worthy of persecution and death. The deposit that once dwelt in the spiritual account of the church needed to be redeposited. Namely, the sufficiency, the superiority, the inspiration, the infallibility of the scriptures. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. And my conscience is captive to the word of God. A battle for the Bible was won that day. But the war rages on. The battle for the Bible to be our standard of faith and practice and life over the centuries, there have been numerous battles and we're still waging the war this day. In October of 1978, the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy was formulated by more than 200 evangelical leaders at a conference sponsored by the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. That statement was designed to defend the position of biblical inerrancy against the growing tend toward liberal teachings of scriptures. You can go online and read the full statement. Many of my college and seminary professors were at those meetings and signed this document. The summary of their statement on the inerrancy of scriptures goes as forth. God, who is himself truth and speaks only truth, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as Creator and Lord, Redeemer and Judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Holy Scripture being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his Holy Spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instructions and all that it affirms. It is to be obeyed as God's command and all that it requires. It is to be embraced as God's pledge and all that it promises. The Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understanding its meaning. Being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teaching. No less than what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events in world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than it is in its witness of God's saving grace to individuals. The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired. If this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded, or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. And such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. 
Folks, we have been given a deposit. A serious deposit. A deposit of truth. The authority of scriptures. We have to guard it. We have to defend it. We have to protect it. And we have to pass it along to the next generation. Intact and complete. With no slippage. With no slow creeping into error. Just this past week, uh, the Shepherds Conference at Master's Seminary in California had an event called the Inerrancy Summit, where godly men from several Protestant denominations all over the world got together to teach, to preach, and to reaffirm their commitment to biblical inerrancy for this generation. Now, why hold such a conference? Because there was a fear among these leaders, these pastors, these seminary professors, these seminary teachers, that slippage and error was creeping in. If you're interested in these sessions, they're all online. Uh, You can go to uh, shepherdsconference.org. Now, I could go on and on and on. And I passionately want to go on and on and on, guarding and defending the deposit that God has given to us in his word into uh, our spiritual account. Because we have to do this. William Barclay, in his commentary on 1 Timothy 6.20, wrote this. A man does well to remember that his duty is not only to himself, but also to his children and his children's children. If in our day the church were to become enfeebled, if the Christian ethic were to be more and more submerged into the world, if the Christian faith were to be twisted and distorted, it would not only be we who are losers, but those generations still to come would be robbed of something infinitely precious. We are not only the possessors, but also the trustees of the faith. That which we have received, we must also hand on. It's not just good for us to believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures. We must pass it on to the next generation. Just as faithful parents and Sunday school teachers and pastors and professors have passed it on to us. We must guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. So now let's look at the second spiritual deposit that I want to talk about this morning, the gospel message. We're to guard, to protect, and preserve, to defend the truth that the gospel is God's message. Now, I don't want to go further this morning into this point, expounding on the grave necessity to guard and defend this spiritual deposit that God has given to us, like I did on the first point. On this point, I want to expound on what are the specifics of the truth of the gospel, apply it to our lives, so we know what we are defending. In our passage this morning, the end of verse 20 and verse 21 is a warning to us. Avoid. Avoid. It's a warning. Do not allow false teachers to infiltrate our ranks. We must have a pure, biblical gospel. We must hold firmly that the Bible is the truth, the whole truth. And we must know from that word what the message of God is to the world. The gospel. The good news. To not allow error and and so-called knowledge to subvert our faith we must have a simple and clear understanding of the gospel. So if someone came up to you and asked you, what is the gospel? What would you say? How would you answer it? Can you 
clearly articulate the central truth of what you believe in a sentence or two. Every one of us in this room needs to be able to do that. You have to be able to. At the drop of a hat, when someone asks you, what is the gospel? You have to know it. Like you know your birthday. Like you know your phone number. Like some of you know your phone number. (laughs) Better than you know your phone number, you need to know the gospel. Let's look at a few verses that we could use to answer that question. That helps us answer that question. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 gives us a great biblical definition of the gospel. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you receive, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you, as of first importance, what I also believed. Here's the gospel that he delivered to them. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The essence of the gospel message is simply the story of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. The good news is Jesus. The good news is the story of him. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. And he's not buried in some tomb somewhere, but he rose in victory over sin, over death, and through his resurrection secured eternal life. That's the gospel. John 3.16, a great verse for a description of the gospel. For God to love the world, that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Got to have that verse tucked away in your brain. Romans 10, 9 and 10. It's a great summary description of the gospel. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. It's a heart thing that changes our actions, our lives. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Great summary description of the gospel. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Every single one of us in this room needs to know these verses, cling to these verses. They need to be heart verses for us. You know, they're just so much a part of us. They're part of the beating of our spiritual hearts. We need to know them intimately into our souls. And and there's even more wonderful verses that should just drive us and cling to us because they're words that give us meaning. These words give us hope. These words give us the direction and the purpose of our lives. So let's do a quick summary now of a simple gospel message and presentation. It's the way I really like to do it. It really helps me to put it together this way and to present it this way. Three things. You got bad news, you got good news, and you got the greatest news. You got bad news, good news, greatest news. What's the bad news? Right? Romans 3.23. It's the bad news, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. And that sin separates us from God. Not only does our sin separate us from God, but God judges sin. 
So not only is our sin separated from us from God, but our sin will bring judgment from God. We can't earn clemency. We can't stand in judgment before God. Someone has to come and do something about our sin problem. Someone has to come and take this punishment for us. Well, hey, folks, there's some good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made Jesus to be sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 2.2, Jesus says that, that God's only Son, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Only Jesus took the punishment of the bad news of the reality of our sin. He bore God's judgment on the cross so that we could then be part of God's family. For God to love the world that he gave his one and only son to take our place. That's the good news. The bad news for sinners. The good news, there's a Savior. The greatest news, because God loves you, because God sent his son, because Jesus died in our place, we can have eternal life. We get to be part of the family of God. How awesome is that? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23 For whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And not just some future. You know, salvation is not a ticket to the afterlife. Salvation is the joy of our lives to be able to change everything about us and to follow Jesus as our Savior. How do we receive the gift? Romans 10, 9, and 10 is a great place to go. What do you do now? You've got the bad news out. You've got the good news out. You've got the greatest news out. And they say they want it. What do you do? Romans 10, 9, and 10 is where you go. So you help them confess with their mouth, to say it, what they believe in their hearts, that God is raised Jesus from the dead, that Jesus is their Savior, that he died and rose from the the dead for them. And they are saved. Jesus said in Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You've had the bad news of our sin and God's judgment. The good news of Jesus' sacrifice for our sin and Jesus taking our judgment. Then the greatest news, but to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 1.12. That's a clear and simple way to present the gospel. That's the gospel. But folks, we must remember that salvation is not a transaction. It's a transformation. This is so important. This is one of the pitfalls of our modern evangelism. We sell evangelism as a simple set of beliefs. Believe these four things. Agree to these five points and you're saved. Salvation's not an agreement. Salvation's not a transaction. It's not a ticket to heaven. It's not a contract that you sign. Salvation is a transforming work of the Spirit in our hearts and lives. Salvation includes repenting and changing of our thinking, changing the directions of our lives, a change of our heart. It's not just a set of beliefs. Salvation takes a heart 
that is bound for selfishness and sin and transforms it into a heart that is bound to glorify Jesus Christ. It moves us from the kingdom of darkness with ourselves as the Lord and translates us, puts us into the kingdom of God, of His beloved Son, as Jesus as our Lord. Jesus is not some addition to our lives, not some thought that we've uh, you know, assented to. Jesus becomes the Lord and Savior of our lives, our whole lives, transforming us inside out. We exchange our lives for Him. It is no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me. Hear these words this morning. Hear them. Evaluate. Is Jesus just a nice set of beliefs in your life? Or is Jesus your life? Is he the Savior, the Lord of your life? Has he transformed your heart and life? Have you ever really put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your soul and the ruler of your life? That's the question I implore that each one of us answer today. Well, the message of the gospel is a truth that has been put into our gospel bank account to guard to defend, and to pass along to the next generations. But think about this with me now. No one in the early church had a tract. No one in the early church even had a New Testament. They didn't have anything to hand out or to give out. No one in the early church had Christian radio to, to send somebody to. No one had word of life, you know, books to point somebody to. No one, there were no mission agencies. See, no one in the early church had seminaries. They didn't have evangelism classes, right? And they reached tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people for Christ. They literally changed the world. Now, all that stuff is good and useful. I'm so glad we have that for us. I'm not saying any of that stuff is bad. What I'm trying to say for us is trying to reconnect to something much more basic, much more real. The reason they were so effective in reaching their family and friends, neighbors, community, countries, the world for Jesus Christ, is they couldn't help but not talk about this Jesus that saved their soul. They had something that was so much more valuable than any of our modern means of evangelism could ever give us. They had a passionate love for Jesus Christ that invaded their everyday lives. They had a sold-out devotion for Jesus Christ that affected the way they lived their life. They had a clear understanding of their need of salvation. They had a clear understanding of who saved them, how they got saved, and they just naturally, in the course of their lives, out of their natural personalities, in their everyday lives, were able to share what Jesus did for them. When you bumped into them, Jesus came out. He overflowed from their souls and their life like a life-giving spring. When's the last time that you were so engulfed with what Jesus did in your life? When you were so excited about what he's done in your life that you couldn't help but tell somebody, tell them about your Savior. How awesome he is. What grace, what love. What forgiveness, what hope, what inspiration, what meaning, what purpose. 
It just flowed from you. You see, Satan and our world around us has so strongly infected our culture that our culture around us says, you're not supposed to do that. You're not allowed to do that. No, 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 don't do that. We're supposed to keep our faith private. We're supposed to keep our faith indoors, in the church walls, in our private lives, in our homes. Private, secure, quiet. Our culture tells us that being sold out, being excited about Jesus is wrong. Now, it's okay to have Jesus and say, oh yeah, you can have him. But just make sure he quietly stays in his little place. Don't let him out. Folks, it's hard. It's hard. Let me say that again. It is hard to go against this raging current of our culture. It's hard. But we've been given this deposit that's been entrusted to us. We have to pass it on to the next generation. We have to do it to be passing on. We have to let Jesus out. We have to let him out of our hearts, out of our mouths, through the way we live our lives to the people around us. Beloved, this is my cry for your life. This is my cry for my life. That we would be so amazed by the love of Christ for us. That we would be so sold out in devotion and worship to Jesus Christ. We would be so alive by the Spirit with Christ in our daily lives. We would be so full of Jesus Christ and His salvation that it would be impossible for Him to not just flow right out of us, out of our personalities, in our lives. We would just overflow with Jesus. Guard the deposit entrusted you. Avoid the false teaching that infiltrates and say, here I am. Here I stand. I can do no other. Let's pray. Father, it is the plea of each one of us in this room to be you know, like those first century believers that lit a world on fire for you because they were so in love with you. They were so indebted to the salvation. They were, they were so passionate. They were so overwhelmed by your mercy and grace. They were so thankful and so full of gratitude that they just couldn't help but tell people about it. Lord, help us to be like that. And Lord, also, we want to come to you now just in thankfulness. We want to thank you for your word, for this Bible that you've given to us. It is precious to us. It's a treasure that you've given to us. And Lord, we say now that we will defend it. We will pass it on, and we will defend it and make it our own and save it for the next generation as the generation before us gave it to us. Lord, we want to say through the power of the Holy Spirit, we want to say through, uh, through just the joy that wells up in our hearts that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.